0: You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. Uh, I guess we were kind of like overdue for a rainy Sunday. So, oh well. Um, Let me, before I start this morning, say this. So, here we are. We're in the middle of Exodus. And um, we talked a few weeks ago about um, the intentionality, uh, with what we preach and how we preach here at the brook. Um, I've heard people say before, um, Hey, you know, we're in Exodus or we're in Psalms or wherever, like, why is it that you always seem to go back to the gospel? Um, Somewhere in my life, about 10, 12 years ago, I realized that I spent most of my life not even realizing, even walking through seminary, that it's all about Jesus. Um, From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, it's it's all about Jesus. It is all about the good news of the gospel. And so I want to encourage you, um, every time that we have the opportunity to come together Um, in the word. Every time that you get up in the morning and you're out on your patio in the word or wherever it may be, whether you're in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Psalms, uh, Jeremiah, you best look for Jesus um, because it's about him. And that's what's so transformative about the word of God. Um, Okay, so that was free. Um, (laughs) Let's move on. Um, Last week in Exodus 24, God calls Moses and his brother Aaron and Aaron's sons and the elders up the mountain, and it tells us that they saw the God of Israel, they see God, they get this glimpse of his glory. Well, after this, um, once again, Moses is summoned up into God's presence alone, And so before we dive into Exodus 25 this morning, um, I'd like for us to take a look at the end of Exodus 24 together. So look with me in Exodus 24, beginning in verse 15. It says, Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, let's just pause right there for a little bit of a maybe cultural window into our lives. um, And think of the, the implications of what we just read. Moses was alone waiting to hear from God for six days. Could you and I possibly wait on anything for six days? We have a bit of trouble. We need to get a handle on life. And on the speed with which it is passing by. And stop letting it dictate for us how we live. So... Moses is up there somewhere and he's waiting on God. So back into verse 16. On the seventh day, God called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Can you imagine being down there and looking up like what is happening to Moses? Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So after the remarks about doing anything for six days, let's just not even mention 40 days. Okay, so now Moses is going to come back down and he is going to give the people the instructions that God gave him on the mountain. So let's take a look at these instructions together. Look with me in Exodus 25, beginning in verse one. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, onyx stones, stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breast piece. You could argue, as we mentioned last week, that Exodus 24 is... The first, what we would call, organized worship service um, ever. Some people, probably pastors specifically, would take issue with this. Why? Well, they read the Word of God. They prayed together. They openly declared who God was. They probably even sang. But they didn't take an offering. So what's going on? can't really call this a worship service, can we? I know some of you a minute ago when Reed was explaining about here's how we can give here at the Brook, we kind of tend to think, is that really like spiritual? Should we be talking about that? I mean, text to give? I mean, what are we, like Buck Rogers in the 25th century here? No, it is very, very spiritual for us to talk about our giving because everything that we have belongs to God and he calls us to bring back. In in all seriousness, what God says to the people here is, bring me a gift. Bring me your contributions. All the gold and silver, all the livestock, all the wealth, everything that I gave you from out of the hands of the Egyptians, bring back a portion of it to me. This is what we would call a free will offering. Okay? So the first thing that God does here is he says to the people, here's how you are to give. Go back and look at verse 2. That God says to take a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. God puts the contribution into the hands and moreover the heart of the individual. God says to the Israelites and to us as his people... I'm not as concerned with the size of your gift than I am with the heart with which it is given. God is not looking at the size of what you and I bring to him. He is looking at the heart with which we bring it. If you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I believe it's important to understand this is not just a one-time thing God says here, but this is a very clear, consistent Biblical principle that's being laid out in 2nd Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 Paul is telling the Corinthians about how the church in Macedonia Heard about how the church in Jerusalem Was in dire need they were doing really really bad financially Well, the church in Macedonia wasn't doing a whole lot better, but they felt compelled to give not out of abundance, but they gave sacrificially to their brothers and sisters in Christ that they'd never even met before. And in commenting on this, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, look at what Paul says in verse 6. Paul says, here's my point. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. But whoever sows bountifully will also reap Bountifully. Now, listen to this verse. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And this verse is powerful. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, having all the things that we need, In all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. Again, this is not just some one-time thing in Exodus that God says. Throughout the Scriptures, God is saying, I am examining, yes, the gift, but more importantly, the heart that brings the gift. And Paul says here, God pours into your life and mine... Um, So that we can pour back out. If you're a parent, you know that getting a gift from your child that they made, it's like, oh, my heart's going to explode. You know, Uh, they bring home some crazy looking drawing and you don't even know what it is. But somewhere on there you can make out it says daddy. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's a dead iguana in the road. You drew it for me. Oh. But I remember when my kids were younger that maybe for Father's Day or something, my wife would take them out to buy a gift for me. And I would open that gift and I could see on their faces like they picked this out. Now, if you know my daughter, my daughter's 16 now, but I'll just tell you when Libby was six or seven, she was imaginative, creative, innovative and all that. But she wasn't holding down two part-time jobs. Not surprise you. She wasn't. Do you know where she got all the money that she had? Me. But see, here's the thing, people. Our Heavenly Father loves to give to us so that we can bring back to Him. And He also loves to do that so it gives us an opportunity to become more like Him. Generous. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, is that you and I have been blessed so that we might be a blessing. And that's what God is saying here to the people in Exodus. Hey, I have given all the gold, the silver, the livestock, the wealth, everything that my people have, I gave them out of the abundance of the Egyptians or out of the miracle of me just providing for them in the desert. Bring some of it back to me. So first, God says, here's how you are to give. And then he explains what's to be given. And as I just said, he goes through this list of here are all the things I want them to bring back. So here's how to give, here's what to give. But now for the most important part. Here's why I want you to bring it back. Look at verse 8. He says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in your midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Verse 10. They will make an ark of acacia wood. This is not an ark like Noah built. This is a box. It's about four feet long, uh, about three, three feet high, three feet deep. So it's not huge. I think we've generally, when we've thought about the Ark of the Covenant, pictured like this really fancy coffin. It's not even that big, okay? But you're going to build it out of acacia wood. That's how long, how wide, how deep. Verse 11, overlay it with pure gold inside and outside and make on it a molding of gold around it. Verse 12, you will cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on one side of it, and two rings on the other side. You will make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you will put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles will remain in the rings of the ark, they will not be taken from it. And you will put into the ark the testimony that I will give you. Why put these poles on there? Well, number one, to carry it. But number two, because we learn later um, that no one was to touch the ark. Um, One of David's men, Uzzah, touches the ark and he struck dead right there. So these poles are for not only your convenience, but for your safety. Verse 17. You will make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you will make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you will make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end, and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim will spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. "'Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. "'And you will put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, "'and in the ark you will put the testimony that I will give you. "'There I will meet with you. "'And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim "'that are on the ark of the testimony, "'I will speak with you about all I will give you in commandment "'for the people of Israel.'" So everyone is invited to give, and whatever you bring, bring your best, because this is for the Lord. We are going to build him a tabernacle, a sanctuary. Let them make me a sanctuary, and within that sanctuary, you will place the ark, and within that ark, you will place the testimony of my word, and on top of the ark will be the mercy seat. So God says you're to build me a sanctuary. Why? So that I can dwell in your midst. Look back at verse 8. God says you're to build me a sanctuary that I may dwell with you. Verse 22. There I will meet with you. And further on in verse 22, that I will speak with you, that I may dwell with you, meet with you, speak with you. This fulfilled the promise of the covenant that God declared that he would be with his people. What better way to do this than to set up your tent right in the middle of their camp? Okay, the tabernacle connected them to God. His presence would rest at the center of their community. If they moved, God would move with them. And every position of every piece and every part of the ark, of the tabernacle, had eternal significance. So I want you to think through this, walk through what we've read here. The law was placed within the ark. Okay, so God's holy standard that his people were aware that on their own they could never live up to. This was inside the ark. What was in the ark could not save them. Okay, all it could do was condemn them. The law placed in the ark brought condemnation. Did it not? It revealed you are sinners. But God was on top of it. God's presence was on top of it. The mercy seat was on top of the ark. The throne of God was over all of it. The cherubim surrounding it. And just to clear this up, uh, because I think we may have gotten this idea from today, um, cherubim are not um, chubby, cute little angels with harps and fluffy wings, okay? Um, You don't want to mess with the cherubim because they are surrounding and guarding the throne of God, okay? (laughs) But here we have the presence of God resting over the thing that brings condemnation. The mercy seat, the location and the origin of mercy, the throne of God. Friends, as as sinners who have entered into this world in rebellion towards God, you and I, in our flesh, Ought to do nothing but fear the throne of God because that would be the place where we find justice and condemnation that we do nothing but deserve. However, the place of justifiable judgment becomes the place of undeserved mercy. Right here in Exodus. How is this possible? Well, we don't learn this until later, but in Leviticus 16, in Leviticus 16, the priest would take the blood of the sin offering and what do you think that he does with that blood? Sprinkles it on top of the ark. First here in Exodus 24, Moses takes the blood of the covenant and throws it all over the altar. Why? To say, well, that this covenant begins with the presence of God, with God's initiation. The sin offering in Leviticus, they take the hyssop branch, dip it in the blood, and the first thing they do is throw it on top of the ark. They sprinkle it over the mercy seat. Because this is to visually show God's people that the blood has come between the presence of God and your sin. The blood has come between our sin and the Father. This once again shows our sins are forgiven. It's helpful to consider and remember in all of this the the definition, the purpose of a sanctuary, What, what a sanctuary really is. If you look up the definition, usually the first one that you'll find, even in the dictionary, is a place of worship that's a sanctuary but definition two is that a sanctuary is a place of refuge and safety i think that at times um and yes this is a sanctuary because this is a place where you and i have come to worship god and to meet with him but friends As followers of Jesus Christ, and as a result, as children of the Most High God, our sanctuary is the presence of God. It's not this building. It is this building because the presence of God is here. Our sanctuary has become the presence of God. Our place of refuge and safety is Jesus Christ. If you look in Ezekiel 11:16, this is one place of many in the Old Testament where God is proclaiming, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm going to do. God tells his people in Ezekiel 11:16, I have been a sanctuary for them. To them. Not I told them to build a sanctuary or I will make them a sanctuary, but I have become their sanctuary. I am your place of refuge and safety. D.A. Carson says it this way the real sanctuary is where God is, it's not where the masonry is, it's not in a geographical location. God is not restricted to Jerusalem. God is not restricted to a box. God is not restricted to a cubicle room behind a veil. Friends, our sanctuary, our tabernacle, our place of refuge and safety is God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's just let Paul explain it. He can do it way better than me. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Remember that you were at that time, and let's remember that this is not just the Ephesians, this is us. Remember that you and I were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers To the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat to show the Israelites that the blood of the covenant has come between the presence of God and your sin, making a way for you back to him. But friends, we can't keep sprinkling blood forever and ever and ever. It wasn't going to work. And so Christ's blood has now completely covered our sin and we have been brought back to God. The blood has come between our sin and the Father. It has reconciled us back to him. And so now turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 So now because of these things, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. The law condemns us. It reveals to us that our defiled hearts can never be holy on their own. We are justifiably Condemned because of our sin against a holy God. However, the throne of just judgment has become the altar of undeserved mercy. The cross of Jesus Christ has become our mercy seat. So, see, now when you read Exodus 25 and you Read about that mercy seat on top of the ark. You and I, we know the Father was already pointing to the Son. He was already showing us what He was going to do in and through Jesus Christ. The cross is where the blood of the Lamb, our Savior, has come between our sin and the Father. He has reconciled us back to God by covering us, by becoming our holiness. The cross of Christ is where undeserving sinners find mercy and grace. Let's close this morning by reading from 1 John 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.